Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. With the Olympics in full flight, and especially after the events of the the last week with the Australian team, we thought we'd get our brilliant Open House human condition guru, clinical psychologist Lynn Worsley, in to address this. The pressure of performance and the role that anxiety plays in it all. There's no doubt that lots of anxiety has been on show this past week. And this is something that extends way beyond sport. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Lee. Great to see you. This is very topical. Let's go through the notion of what's happening to someone when they have anxiety. Yeah. Now, anxiety is one of the most common mental health conditions in our Western culture. And it's been studied a lot, particularly as it relates to the quality of a person's life. Now, anxiety has a number of ways that it plays out. Now, someone who is anxious may feel a sense of panic when there is something that's new or out of the ordinary. They might also feel nervous around anything that is different. So as they go through life, they have a nervous or anxious response to any change of any kind, resulting in an increasing set of memories that evoke an anxious response to them. Which can be very common. So for someone facing up to the pressure of performance, these the physical signs probably pretty familiar to most of us. Yes, yes. Now, look, you know, physical signs would be like a nervous stomach or butterflies, heart racing, increasing breathing, tingling in the limbs, like in the hands and, and feet, um, dry mouth, clammy skin, and a head full of fast thoughts. <laughs> there are so many people out there saying, yes, 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 tick, tick, tick. And the physical symptoms of a panic, a panic attack or a level of consistent, consistent anxiety is a bit like running the marathon. And after the panic, the body shuts down and is totally exhausted. So what happens is it's run out of the endorphins that give you a good feeling and it just wants to withdraw and sleep. Wow. So you can also have lots of pain in your limbs um, from the tension that you've had. But the thoughts of an anxious person are another thing. Okay. So So how do they differ? When anxiety strikes, there's a repetitive pattern of thoughts which seek to try and placate the anxiety. So such as, um, watch out for this, or what if this happens, or um, be careful something bad might happen. Um, And the thinking is a pervasive, pessimistic style of thinking, and it's centered around the fears. And it drives the person harboring the anxiety into a frenzy of avoidant or protective behaviors. And that seeks to stop the whole bad things from happening. And the extreme of this can turn into sort of like an obsessive compulsive disorder. But we can talk about that on another night. Yeah, we're going to do that one night. Yes. But the normal everyday anxiety, which occurs in two out of every five people, I might add, has an incredibly disabling effect on performance. That's more common than I think many people would probably realise. Yes. Here's the thing, though. Don't we need a level of anxiety, be it in, say, broadcasting, public speaking or the Olympics? Don't we need some anxiety or edge to perform well? Yes. Yes, okay. we do. Now, there was a university study done that, that tested the performance of students in public speaking. Um, they were initially set up to write a speech to talk to themselves in front of the mirror. That's yeah. a very low anxiety situation. Yeah. And they found that hardly any of them did it. And for those that did, they didn't take it seriously at all. So the performance was pretty bad. Um, They increased this to speaking to a small group of friends. So some increased their performance in response to this. So there was a bit of stress and the performance increased. They were then given the task of delivering the speech to the class, which increased the performance considerably. And they performed quite well. 
They were then asked to perform for the whole year group. And again, for some, this increased the performance even more. But for others, they couldn't do it. And their performance decreased. And this showed that there was a level of stress that was needed to increase performance to its peak. Yes. And from this study, there's been many others that have worked out that each person, each individual person has a level of stress that achieves their optimum performance. But when you tip the stress over the limit, the performance drops. Okay. So yeah. it's really good information for each of us to know what is your level of stress that you need to perform at your best. It's hard to tell. <laughs> Again. So here we have, for instance, the Olympics. Very public view of many of our Australian Olympians being stretched and some not succeeding to the extent that they wanted to, mm. but under enormous stress. Yes. And we can see that the stress to compete and build up their skills coming up to competition increases their performance and they achieve personal bests, but for some of them they don't and they collapse. And when we see there is a personal best, we can relate this having achieved their peak of helpful stress levels. But, and coaches and teams work towards that goal and they protect and banter with each other just to make sure they can alleviate the stress or build the stress to maintain the level needed to perform. But when we see that they collapse, there's just too much stress and they've gone beyond what they can tolerate and their performance is compromised. Yeah. Now, we saw this with James Magnuson in the level of pressure that he was under and his response to the experience. been a lot of talk about what happened with him. So tell us the psychology of performance anxiety and, and what might have happened to him and others. Okay, there's a number of things going on from what I can see. An athlete is generally a person who has the character strengths of tenacity, endurance, focused attention, and a high level of commitment. Um, they're also incredibly passionate people. So to reach the goal of being an Olympic competitor means they've had to train for hours over many years and block out a lot of things out of their minds to achieve that. They might be passionate about what they do, but to perform at that level, they have to become quite obsessive about it. Now, there's a study done by a man called Valorant, and he described two kinds of passions. A, a harmonious passion, and that's freely chosen for the pleasure that comes from an activity or a concept that's very similar to like an intrinsic motivation. So okay. that's harmonious pa passion. Yep. So you do it for your own pleasure and not for the approval of other people. Harmonious passion is characterized by autonomy and flexible persistence. And people pursue these activities because they want to, not because they want to please someone else or outshine someone else or avoid being outshone. Mm. Now, the kind of passion is adjustable and it leaves time for other pursuits like filling the entire, you know, giving giving person a good life. Okay. The other passion is obsessive passion and it's connected to extrinsic motivation, so outside of the person. Yes. So that's like wanting to please others or to maintain a certain status that's important for their self-esteem. And as the name implies, obsessive passions can become unmanageable, controlling a person's life and filling up their whole picture. With obsessive passion, not being able to perform the activity, perhaps because of injury or obligations, can cause anxiety, guilt feelings and a loss of self-esteem. So for Olympians, you can guess which passion is driving them to perform. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> now they might start with harmonious passion, but they'll eventually turn to obsessive passion just for the simple nature of the training and the focus of their lives coming up to the Olympics. Yeah. I said at the opening of the program, I walked past a big city building yesterday, mid-city, and there's this two- or three-story photo of James Magnuson. Mm. So you can imagine the kind of pressure that he comes under, just yes. adding to the obsessive passion. Yes, yes.
Yes, so there's this huge lot of expectations from the general public. So Valorant also found in numerous studies that harmonious passion is positively related to life satisfaction, while obsessive passion is not. Yes, okay. Now, in the work with Frederick Philippe and other people, he also found that people who have harmonious passions tend to be enjoyable to be around. They probably because they experience positive emotions as they participate in their passion. Mm -hmm. Also, they're flexible about the way they engage and they're able to adjust their behaviours to the needs of the moment, including the needs of other people. But in contrast, people with obsessive passions are likely to experience negative emotions along the way and be driven to inflexibility. Their interpersonal relationships often suffer as a result. Now, people with harmonious passion are more likely to create mastery skills so they can focus on their improved performance, which lead to deliberate practice and they can lead to improved performance all round. But people with obsessive passion would like to make performance goals based on their social comparison. So, for example, they want to outperform others, so they're, they're approach-orientated. And the other one is that they don't want to be outperformed by others, so they avoid being outperformed by other people. Yeah. Now, these performance goals are negatively associated with performance. So to look at other people, it's negatively associated with performance. My question is... This seems really quite sophisticated mm. and very adult, but this is sometimes going on in the heads in the Olympics of teens yeah. or, you know, early 20s. It's yeah. such a big call. Yes, 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 exactly, exactly. So what we have is a person who starts with a harmonious passion, which can help their mastery of their skill or whatever their specialty is, but then it turns obsessive which then begins, ironically, to affect their performance. Yes, yeah. Now, Lee, I've got a few theories of my own as to how this changes and predicts performance. I always listen to your theories. Now, (laughs) from what I can see, there's a few things that that we do that make things worse for them. Firstly, there are predictions and expectations that set up both in the media and the minds of each of us. They're helpful for all of us to get on board and get excited and watch the Olympics and support the Games. But in the past, the coaches who were working with the Olympians would would be able to protect them from these predictions and perhaps even shield them from the expectations by not buying the newspaper or watching the television. Yes. But now these young Olympians are in the social media sites all the time and they're not only obsessed with their physical performance, but they're also social performance through their own social networks, which can't be monitored. See, on Friday, Emily Seabone was tweeting to all her followers, I want 20,000 followers by Saturday night by the time I swim. And I think, no, dear, don't no, go there. No. Yeah. Now, from my understanding, it also affects two different parts of the brain. So okay. while they're focused on their physical pain, they're striving for fitness and mastery skills, which is one part of the pain, a brain. They're also focused on the person in the next lane, the cheers of the crowd, and the message that they just received on Facebook before they got on the starting block. <laughs> oh, too much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, the brain can only manage a certain time uh, amount of energy, and it, it means this is divided, and that's been shown in a number of studies with social media. Yeah, so less energy is focused on the physical performance itself. Very interesting. I'll pay that theory. Yep. Secondly, there's a barrage of questions they have to answer as they complete their performance. They literally walk from the finish finish line and they have to answer how they feel, what they're thinking and how their game plan worked. And these are another completely set of skills which involve another part of the brain. My wife, Meredith, said this very thing last night and I thought that's 
absolutely it. So they, they've got this crushing disappointment or whatever. Yeah. Climb out on the pool deck and bang, the camera's in there. And straight away their brain has to switch from one side to the other. Remember they've got obsessive um, in extrinsic motivation going on and it's on one side of the brain and now it's got to switch to the other. And they have to focus on what they're doing in both ways. And what are we thinking by expecting them to actually answer questions and involve a multitask brain? They and, haven't got one. And BTW, they're puffed as yes, well. Yes, yes. <laughs> yep, I think that's true. Thirdly, there's another aspect going on. The young Olympian knows that their performance is important, but their careers are short. So okay. their performance on camera and their ability to reflect, answer questions and show some personality might actually lead to a media job in the future. Spot on. So it's another set of skills that are needed for this and they're likely to be thinking about their performance on camera as well as in the competition. Not too much. So now on top of this, we must expect that these athletes will have performance anxiety. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're going to have all the stress reactions that anyone with a panic attack has and James gave a very good hint that he had anxiety after his first relay race. He couldn't speak. Yeah. He just couldn't speak. Yep. And he was exhausted physically and emotionally and his brain just shut down and his body was tired from lack of sleep, which he said, and the distractions from everyone around him. Now, my concern in all of this is that the coaches who are there, who are there to help manage the level of stress are just not able to. Uh, the athletes don't have a choice if they're interest, you know, if they're interested in being interviewed at the end of the race. They just have the microphone Absolutely. shoved in their yes. faces, yeah. and they must be thinking that every what everyone thinks of them and whether they've disappointed them rather than what they've just accomplished. Well, all of, with all of that milieu, then, are we expecting too much of the athletes and of their coaching staff? You know, if you were the clinical psychologist on the team, put you on the spot to say, is is there something that can be done to help these people or are the, or the calls too big in this day and age? I, I think there is something to be done. I, I, yeah. I really think that it's time to take the phones off them. Yeah. Since uh, that's going to be hard. And, and to say no to interviews. And I, I really think that's important. And it's it is a it, in the past they protected them in in the past that they had that you know a whole lot of of barriers around them so that people couldn't get to them as quickly. And I think that's really really important to protect them for that, and also to help them just to focus. And remember, we're not trying to multitask people here. This is this is elite performers. Yeah. And I'm not trying to convert them to Christian faith, but also we raised this earlier. The question of identity, where are you getting your identity from? Yes. Is it what you do or who you are? Yes, yes. Somebody needs to tell them that, I yes, think. Yes, Well, we've got that beautiful, um, the Blade Runner, the guy, um, yeah. his, his uh, Pistorius from yeah. South Africa. Yep. He, uh, fantastic. And um, he, he had a, a quote from the Book of Corinthians on, his, um, on a tattoo that says, I do not run like a man who is running aimlessly. Oh, gold. Yeah. Should put that up on a two-story yeah. building. Yeah, yeah. So we looked at the performance anxiety as it relates to the Olympian. It does transform to normal life way beyond sport, though, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. And look, performance anxiety leads to a whole lot of behaviours that we can look at and um, and, and we can be careful of. It, it What actually happens is that we avoid um, we sabotage things. So oftentimes you see someone who goes through performance anxiety and they're just going really well, but they just do something bad at the end and they don't get very well, yeah. go very well. Yeah. And it also leads to a fear of failure. 
and uh, I've, I've had a, a young man that saw me this last week and who had just the most wonderful quote um, when I asked him how will he know when he was healed and he said when I feel confident enough to fail now wow. that is wisdom that is wisdom and it's a yeah. profound statement and implies that there is more to the race than in performance yes it implies that the actual process is um is about gathering humility and learning in that process and i think james has actually demonstrated that for us um very publicly yeah so next week um, we'll continue with our series on performance anxiety as it relates to other areas of our lives. Yes, yes. Like, like where? Well, I think performance anxiety relates to how we are with friends socially. It, it relates particularly to how we are in workplace and exams um, and in trying to tackle new career changes. And, and uh, in particular, you know, in relationships, you see performance anxiety coming through all the time when people just are frightened about how they perform for another person rather than actually enjoying the process. That should be really good. I look forward to it. As always, Lynn Worsley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.